Welcome to Contra Pulse. This is Julie Valamont. This episode, we talk with musician, caller, and dance organizer George Marshall. One of the best known and loved Contra callers in the country, George Marshall's mission is to share the joy of dance. In the early 70s, George discovered square and contra dancing. He was immediately hooked and became an avid dancer. His first year at college in the Pioneer Valley of Western Massachusetts, George helped start the contraband Swallowtail and began calling and playing. Based in Belchertown, Massachusetts, he is a full-time musician, caller, dance teacher, and tours nationally during the year. Most of the time he can be found calling and playing with Wild Asparagus and Swallowtail, but he also calls with other wonderful bands such as Pete's Posse, Clayfoot Strutters, Mavish, Syncopaths, Buddy System, Faux Paws, and more. George specializes in teaching and calling New England-style contra dances that he has collected throughout the country. He is known for his knack of matching music to dance and his smooth, concise teaching and presentation. He plays English concertina and boron and has recorded on eight albums. In addition to performing and providing sound reinforcement, George also produces music and dance events, including week-long winter dance vacations on St. Croix in the Caribbean and on the big island of Hawaii. In our chat on my porch, George shared some stories about his early days of dancing and forming bands. We talked about some of his calling mentors and his calling inspirations, his approach to working with bands to create an evening of dancing, and what, in his view, makes great dance music. Hope you enjoy. Hello, George Marshall, and welcome to ContraPulse. Thank you so much for having me here. I am delighted to have you here. I'm delighted to see you again. It's been months. In fact, I think it was in the end of, or the middle of March was the last time I saw you. Yeah. Where we were engaged in the, the last contra dancing that I know of that was happening in the world. That's right. We were in Hawaii at your beautiful week, and that was the last contradicting I was at, and then we came home and everything got really weird. <laughs> and uh, speaking of really weird, it's a very exciting day in Brattleboro on the porch. We seem to, in addition to the normal dump trucks, seem to have some really exciting chainsaw action going on. So I uh, apologize for that, but how long can they use a chainsaw, right? It can't last forever. One can hope. <laughs> Our listeners have heard all sorts of noises from my porch in the last few months, but this is the best way to do this in a pandemic. So George, it's really an honor to have you here. Your name has come up several times in our previous episodes talking about, you know, Swallowtail and Wild Asparagus and the evolution of this kind of current generation of contra dance music. And you have the fun perspective of, well, you can decide if it's fun or not, but you have the unique perspective of being a caller as well as a musician. And so I hope to draw on both of those perspectives as we talk today. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you got started playing for dances and, and how your bands ended up coming about? 
Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, for me, my experience is all, it really started with the dancing. <clears throat> and uh, when I was 15, I was working for the Appalachian Mountain Club up in uh, New Hampshire, uh, out of Pinkham Notch, out of the North Conway area. And it was a summer program that was for college students. And no, I wasn't in college at age 15, um, but I was kind of, I was large for a 15 year old and I was starting to grow a beard. And um, I talked the, uh, <laughs> I, I was uh, lucky enough to be taken on even as a high school student for this college program, which was to build and repair trails uh, in the, um, White Mountain National Forest through the Appalachian Mountain Club's uh, trail program. And so what that meant was that you, uh, either with a group of other trail workers or on your own, you would go into the woods for a week with food and tools and, um, and then you'd repair or build trails. And of course they wanted to have the workers in the woods on the weekends where most people were hiking so that there would be a visible presence and, and progress was being made. And hopefully that would encourage people to make donations to the Appalachian Mountain Club or to the trail project. And so our uh, Friday was basically uh, Tuesday and then Wednesday and Thursday were our Saturday and Sunday. So we'd come out of the woods on a Tuesday and we'd go back into the woods on, uh, on a Friday, which conveniently left Thursday night as our Sunday night. Mm. And it turned out that a lot of the people on the trail crew were really big fans of contra dancing. And I was like, I don't know what this is. I did square dancing in fifth grade, but these people I really like and respect are going off to do this contra dancing thing. I want to go too. So uh, what would happen, my first dance, uh, you know, it was a 15 passenger van with no seats. And so we were kind of like, there were like 20 people in a 15 passenger van stacked in like cardboard, as you can imagine. Yeah. And it was about an hour away. So and over like little tiny, um, <laughs> it was in Tamworth, New Hampshire. And of course we're up in North Conway. So if you look at a map, you can see that's kind of distant and getting there is over Hill and Dale up and down little roads and, uh, but I, I was assured that it was worth it, and I got to the dance, and um, it was at a place called Strafford at the Fields, which was an old country inn, and they hired two callers, uh, Dudley Loffman and Taylor Whiteside would alternate weeks, and they had a summer dance program that they did every Thursday night. So of course, we didn't leave in time to get there uh, early, and so it was already a little dark, it was late dusk, and there was this beautiful barn and light was spilling out of it and wonderful sounds and people laughing and hooping and hollering and having a mm. great time. And we piled out of the van and, and I was the only person at, at that time. Well, actually, that's not true. There were three of us that had never done it before that night. And we got out of the van and most people knew what to do. And so they said, you know, come on in. We'll have a great time. Just do what everybody else is doing. And uh, I thought, OK, so I got in there and it was a blast <laughs> and uh you know it was in the middle of a dance so we were like running around the room and people were dancing and when the music stopped we stopped and uh, then one of the local dancers said hey you know you you it'd be good if you had a partner 
and uh, and join one of these sets. And I was like, partner sets. I mean, I wasn't <laughs> using that before. I don't see why I should do it now. But oh yes, okay, sure. I and and she was like, would you like to dance? And I said, sure. And so uh, it was like learning a new language. It, it was learning a new language of terms and and terminology and uh, you know. I was blown away, and at the at the ripe old age of fifteen, I was like, "Who are these people, and where have they been all my life?" I <laughs> yes. totally love this. I love the whole thing, everything about it, and I couldn't wait till the next week to go back. And you know that was despite the fact that, of course, we were all dancing barefoot on a wood floor after having been in hiking boots for weeks at a time, and so our feet were very tender, and of course we'd get blisters uh, dancing. And then by the next week, our blisters would have healed up in the hiking boots and we get the blisters all over again. <laughs> so I learned some good techniques about how to deal with that aspect of it. But that was about the only negative. So I did that uh, for the, the rest of the summer and it was great. And I've made some made lifelong friends at the through the trail crew. And uh, it is really with my uh, love of, of nature and hiking and all the rest of it was a wonderful thing, but then also to discover contra dancing where there are like-minded people was, was really a wonderful, great thing. And it was contra dancing and square dancing and Sicilian circle and couple dances, waltzes mm -hmm. and things like that as well. It, it, it was a pretty standardized program that the callers were doing. And um, it was really fun. And when I went home, um, I lived, outside of Boston and Cambridge, just a small suburb. And uh, I really started missing dancing, so I tried to figure out if there was dancing in Boston. It turned out there was a lot. Mm -hmm. And so by the end of that school year, I was dancing six or seven nights a week. Wow. And loving it. Um, and uh, my regular dance was the dance outside of Central Square, or in Central Square that um, was the... the uh, pretty regular thing and then um, went as, as far as I could to find other dancing, a, l a little bit to Concord, Massachusetts um, until I got a car. It was hard to, hard to make that trip, but using public transportation, the dances in Cambridge were, and surrounding area was really easy to get to. So then I went off to college and there wasn't very much dancing at all. Where did you go to college? I went to college at Amherst College mm -hmm. and I didn't realize that that particular school had been an all men's college and my year was the first co-ed year. Hmm. The year before they, they'd had some women upperclassmen to kind of pave the way, but somehow it just entirely uh, <laughs> I, I kind of, uh, it was totally off my radar that this was a thing, that, <laughs> that there was any kind of segregation uh, or that this hadn't had a history of, uh, I didn't really, I, I can't believe that I didn't know that, but I didn't. And I got there and I was totally surprised. Um, but there was one dance a month. Uh, Dudley Offman, who was the caller, one of the callers that were calling for the Tamworth dance, would come down and do a dance. And I was in severe withdrawal. Yeah. Uh, and they, occasionally there'd be other dances and I, if I'd had a transportation and could have driven to Connecticut, I could have gone to Ralph Sweet's dance or even up to Brattleboro, as it turns out, if I'd known about them. Um, there, was, there were other dances in the area, but I, I didn't, I couldn't really uh, make it there. Um, 
uh, Cammie Kaner, who later started a s several series of dances uh, and was living in the area, he'd grown up there, and his family, um, uh, Van, his, his brother, and his cousin David, um, kind of were all starting up bands at the same time and dances. But um, I was sitting in my dorm room kind of, uh, you know, trying to study and, and I heard this contra dance music coming through the window. I heard an accordion being played and, and dance tunes that I recognized. And I was, uh, at that point I had a concertina on order because I'd saw somebody playing concertina in one of the Cambridge dances. And I was like, same thing about dancing. I, you know, I saw dancing and I went, oh, I want to do that. I saw somebody playing the concertina and I went, that's what I want to play. Mm. And so I ran up uh, to the, the guy who was playing and said, what, is, what are you playing and, and how do I find one? And he's, he was, of course, taken back a little bit, uh, but gave me the information of a place that sold uh, instruments that suitable for beginners. And, uh, and so I ordered one and uh, was waiting for it to arrive. In the meantime, I was playing tin whistle and, and teaching myself tunes. So I had a little bit of a, uh, familiarity with the repertoire. Mm -hmm. And so I ran down the three flights of stairs and across two courtyards to find this guy playing a, a, an accordion. And I ran up to him and I said, ha, ah, you're playing contra dance music. And he said, yes. And I said, you're gonna have a band and I'm gonna be in it. <laughs> Oh, that fast, huh? And uh, he said, really, uh, wh what do you play? Uh, and I was like, well, I play tin whistle and I've got a concertina on order. And he's like, uh-huh. <laughs> but he, he was a very generous fellow. His name is Chris Keevil. And uh, he, um, he was part of the five college orchestra. He played bassoon with the orchestra. So he knew a bunch of people. And so we started having... Uh, sessions and he also knew how to call because he'd grown up in the town next to Concord and uh, had learned how to call and and uh, had was also working for the Farmer Wilderness Foundation and they had a, a very active um, uh, contradance program part of the camp Jack Slonica who was very active at that time uh, made something called the F&W String Band which uh, Dudley Laughlin was and uh, uh, Rodney Miller were part of and um, a bunch of other folks were involved with that and uh, it was really a uh, it was a great opportunity I didn't know it at the time but it, it, it was <laughs> the perfect thing to do and say so we started getting together and we had this kind of loose association there were I don't know 15 20 people that were in the band and what we would do is we'd play for uh, parties uh, like if the fraternity they had fraternities at, at Amherst and um, when they had fraternity parties sometimes they do like uh, square dance mixers or whatever and so we st we started doing a, a dances and um, a bunch of people got involved and we were trying to figure out a name of what we should call ourselves and we we really liked playing swallowtail jig it was one of our more successful tunes we couldn't play the real <laughs> that was of the same name, but we could definitely make our way through the jig. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a friend who was uh, said, well, you should call yourself Swallowtail because uh, you always play that at your dances. <laughs> and we're like, OK. So um, so we did that. And, and the uh, 
it was, it was really a, a great activity. But after a year and a half of being in college, uh, I was so done. Uh, and so I actually, I was really done at the beginning of my second year of college. And I called up my parents and I said, I don't think I'm in the right place. I don't think I should be doing this. And they said, okay, come home. And I said, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> We've already paid for it. I'll do the semester, but afterwards I think I'm gonna stop. Mm -hmm. And they were like, okay, no problem. Whatever you want, just come home. And uh, so I finished out the, the half the semester and then came back and then went home and promptly got really, really sick. Um, before I'd, I went home, uh, I had uh, one of my bandmates had a girlfriend who was moving to the West Coast and she needed her truck driven across the country. And I didn't think much of it at the time because my plan was to go to New Zealand, which I'd heard about all my life, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and or Australia, uh, and I was going to work and travel. And at that time, you weren't allowed to get a visa unless you were an engineer or a doctor or some profession that they wanted. They had plenty of unskilled labor. And so they didn't want people to do that. But I didn't know it at the time. So I went to the embassy to get to the New Zealand embassy to get a visa. And they said, oh, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd like to uh, tra travel and for six months and, and work. And, and they said, work? I said, well, uh, yeah. Um, and, and they said, well, sorry, visa denied. And I went, oh, gosh, okay. So I went across the street to the Australian embassy and I started, and, and I, they asked, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to travel and spend lots of money. And they said, weren't you just over at the New Zealand embassy asking them if you could work? <laughs> the visa denied. <laughs> so I remembered my, my friend's friend needed a truck driven across country. And I said, well, you know, Seattle is not, or, or the Pacific Northwest is not, uh, um, is not New Zealand or, or, uh, or Australia, but it'll do. So... I went back home and I was ready to drive the truck across country and I came down with a really bad version of the flu. It was also uh, the great snowstorm um, that uh, there were like eight feet of snow on, 90, on Route 90 going across mm. the country. It was incredible. So fortunately, by the time I was well enough to drive and my friend was like, I really need my truck. If you can't do it this week, I'm going to get somebody else to do it. So I drove across in three days. Wow. Which by, by myself, which I don't recommend doing. Um, I was really, I had white line fever really badly uh, by the time I got there. But it was great because my friend had had uh, a, little, a little shed in the back that I could live in. And I was in Olympia, Washington. And there was a little bit of music and dancing going on there. Um, but the best thing was that there was a... Um, a program with the local longshoremen where you could register as a longshoreman. You could join the union for 50 bucks and register and you would be put in a lottery to work unloading containers from container ships. And it was $2,500 a week. And if you won the lottery, you had two weeks worth of work. Mm. So I won the lottery mm -hmm. and I got to work and I had, now I had an almost $5,000, uh, <laughs> almost $5,000 uh, nest egg that I could use mm. to live on. And I was like, okay, Olympia is great, but it's a little too small. I'd like to go to Seattle where there's more stuff happening. And so I moved to Seattle 
and I started going to the dances there. Now the problem was that at that time there wasn't any contra dancing really to speak of in Seattle. Uh, this was in 1978. And so uh, they had a very strong square dance uh, and old time music community there. Um, Sandy Bradley was very active in that and uh, had a Thursday night dance that was in a bar. Now, of course, I'm 18 and the drinking age is 21. Mm-hmm. So, but I had a beard and I looked <laughs> like I was 35. And so I never got carded. I, d- I didn't drink. All I wanted to do was go and dance. Mm-hmm. And so we'd, at the square dance. And the way it was set up is that guests could come in and call, guests could come in and play. Just a few members of the band were, and, and there was like a caller that would co- coordinate everybody. And so when I went up to Sandy and I said, I'd like to, uh, uh, do you ever do any contra dancing? I'd love, love to do some contra dancing. She said, well, uh, do you know how to call one? And I was like, uh, no, but I could find out. And she said, okay, well, you know, when you're ready, just let me know and uh, it would be great for you to call a dance for us. And I thought, oh, okay. So I went outside and called my friend Christy and I said, I need a dance. So he gave me a dance over the phone. I went back in. I said, okay, Sandy, I'm ready. <laughs> and she said, okay. <laughs> and I don't remember much about it, but I do remember they said, you should do that again next week. So I went back outside to Christy and called. I said, okay, I need six more dances. And so I started calling every once in a while at that dance. And I became friends with a woman named Sherry Nevins, who's a wonderful caller from yeah. Seattle. Organizer now. Organizer now, yeah. Yep. And at the time uh, she was calling and sometimes she'd get calls for contra dance weddings, for wedding, and she decided that I was the local expert because I was from New England, and I called contras, and so she would hire me to call some contras at her gigs with her her band, uh, the Flash in the Pan string band that that she uh, that played old time music. And so I did that for a while, and then um, I decided I wanted to do a little more traveling, and went down to the Bay Area, and. Uh, worked for a friend that was a stonemason for a couple months and then decided I wanted to go back east uh, for the summer because I had a summer job working at Farm Wilderness. Um, Through Christy, I'd gotten a job working as a camp counselor and I I love cooking. I love cooking for people. I started at a really early age um, and uh, I was talking with the cook that was, it turns out, was trying to retire but hadn't found anybody to take over for him. And so he said, well, if you come back next year, you can be the camp, you should be the camp cook. And I was like, I've never cooked for a hundred people before. And he said, piece of cake, read this book, which was great (laughs) meatless meals. Mm. And uh, so I, I did, I ended up cooking. And the great thing about the job, this was at the Saltash Mountain Camp. The great thing about the job is that it was not only cooking for the, for the 120 people when they were all in camp, but it was also teaching kids about food and how to cook in the wilderness and how to pack out and plan for meals because it was a hiking camp. And what would happen is cabin groups would go out and hike for four or five days and they'd have to cook their own meals. And each cabin group was helped me with cooking. Um, and the goal was to get each cabin group able to cook breakfast for the whole camp by the end of the summer. Cool program. Uh, yeah. And so uh, it was great. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I didn't know I didn't know and so I did it just fine <laughs> and I did that for several summers and then they decided the camp administration decided they wanted to change the whole paradigm of the camp and the only way to do that was to fire everybody 
that was there and then rehire other people so that there wouldn't be a um, they wouldn't have continuity problems right. or they wouldn't have the problem of continuity because they could invent their reinvent themselves entirely and all through that the farm and wilderness experience uh, there were dances that I was calling and music that I was playing with that with that particular group um, but when I came back home and I wanted to rejoin the band that I had started which was Swallowtail they said well you're not that great a musician but uh, we've heard you've been doing some calling and if you want to share the calling responsibility uh, we will um, you can you can rejoin the band and I thought oh and I don't know if they were kidding or not but it worked out perfectly for me because it meant there were two other callers at the time so the three of us split the evening calling responsibilities and kind of a la, it, the calling had always been on the model of the main uh, contradance communities um, kind of blueprint, which was that the band members would call dances and mm -hmm. you take turns playing the music and calling so that no one person had the whole responsibility for the evening. I love that feeling. It feels very folky. It, yeah. it does. It's very, it's very genuine. It, it really, it's, it is a kind of nice way to do it. And, and so as Swallowtail, we had three callers and and we all played and it worked really well so could you um who were the starting members of swallowtail well it's pretty easy because it's the uh we had this big group of 15 and while i was away for that year it kind of got pared down to about uh five people mm -hmm. and so um the the five people were uh tim van eggman mm -hmm. who plays hammer dulcimer he's one of the other callers ron grossline who plays fiddle and mandolin uh, David Cantini, who plays woodwinds, Tim Triplett, who plays piano, and um, we also had uh, Ed Mulhern, who uh, played flute and banjo, and was one of, one of the other callers, and uh, and then myself. So there were six of us, and we um, we really were. Uh, we start, decided that we would take over, that we would start a second Saturday dance. Uh, and so we started up a dance in South Amherst, uh, a monthly dance. And that was great because it, it gave us something to rehearse toward and have material for and to get a sense of what it was like to organize things and, and all of that. And it made it feel more like, you know, we have a hometown dance now. Mm -hmm. We looked into the possibility of Greenfield, the Guiding Star Grange had become uh, available for dances and we we thought about doing something there but the Munson Library dance at the time we were getting almost twice as in sometimes we'd have twice as many people as really should have been in there dancing um, it was the dancing would be out the door and there'd be another line of people dancing outside the building it was really uh, way successful series and at that time Applejack was also doing a series of dances and Ralph Sweet had started doing it so going from one dance a month to having now three or four dances and then the Caners started doing dances up in Northfield and Cami uh, had a dance in Amherst that he would do uh, regularly as well. So there was a, it was now you could dancing three or four nights a week within a pretty close area. So our mission had been successful in, in creating more dancing in the valley. Mm -hmm. uh, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, it was a great thing. Um, but, you know, I missed my friends on the West Coast and I was really proud of the fact that we'd made a dance band that was actually playing music and 
dancing and we'd, we'd done a little bit of touring on the East Coast. And, uh, and then I went off, I, I studied geology when I was in college and um, I went to field camp uh, because when, you have a, when you're getting a geology degree, you need some practical experience of what it's like actually to look at rocks mm -hmm. out in the field. And the college had shared a uh, facility in, in Red Lodge, Montana, up in the uh, Flat, Flatiron uh, Mountains that uh, they did their summer programs through. So I went up and, and did that summer program. And uh, it was great, and I loved being in the, in the West. And I'd heard a rumor that the fellow that used to teach or that had been teaching and running square dances at Yellowstone National Park was retiring that next year. And I thought to myself, oh, in Yellowstone Park, they have four beautiful halls that were built for dancing. Mm. And now they're not going to have dances anymore. And they used to have weekly dances at each of the uh, lodges. And so I contacted the TWA, which is the uh, organization, not the airline. It was the organization that uh, staffed the park with all the park workers and said, hey, we're going to be touring. We're a square dance band. Do you want us to come and do dances when we're in the area? And they said, yeah, sign us up. We'll have you do four dances. And so all of a sudden we had a gig in Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to visit my friends in uh, the Northwest. And David's brother uh, lived also in the, in the Pacific Northwest and, and some of his other relatives, our, our wind players family was out there. So we decided to put together a tour, a driving tour out to the West Coast. Um, Ed Mulhern was, is a medical doctor and he didn't really want to go on tour. But the rest of us were like, heck yeah, sign us up. So we ended up doing a three-week tour where we played across the country. We were in Yellowstone. We stayed there and we played four dances and had a blast, of course, exploring the park during the day and made it out to the West Coast and then drove down through California and played there. And it was really, uh, it was really fun. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Were you billed as Swallowtail? We were billed as Swallowtail. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, then the next year we wanted to do it again, but our piano player, Tim Triplett, had written his PhD thesis on the first tour, like by hand, on pads of paper. And he couldn't face doing the rewrite in the van. And so he said, I'm still your piano player, but I cannot do this tour with you, but you really should do it because it was amazing. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so we were like, yeah, well, we do need to have a piano player or some kind of rhythm player because we're a top-heavy band anyway. We have, you know, four melody instruments and one, one rhythm instrument, and it, we really need to find somebody. So, uh, so, we, so I, I met Anne Percival through her then-sweetie, and uh, they were just kind of breaking up, and he was like, you know, I, Anne, Anne is a good piano player. You should consider uh, taking her on tour with you. And uh, we were like, sure. So we started playing some gigs and realized it was a good fit and then decided to go on tour with, with her just that summer. And we made it very clear, you know, this is a temporary gig. We're touring, you know, with you and whatever. And her, her grandmother gave her $200 and said, you know, if it gets bad, Missy, just take the bus home. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and we were like, okay. So we went on tour and it was... It was great, and it was also really hard uh, 
it turns out that having um, changing up from being an all male band to a uh, four guys and and a woman changed the dynamics, and uh, it it was it uh, there was drama. Um, David was just about to sort of recommit to his relationship, and he and Anne got together on the trip, uh, and that caused a lot of heartache um, when we came back. Um, David's uh, for, uh, former girlfriend blamed us for letting him fall in love with somebody else, and, uh, <laughs> and it was it was just it was tough. Um, we we all felt badly, uh, and we. Um, and Anne really wanted to keep playing with us and, and some of us really and we, you know, we had fun playing with her she had a whole different approach to the piano we loved playing with Tim we loved playing with Anne we didn't know what to do about that um, but Tim, you know, was there first and wanted to continue to do it and when he wasn't writing his dissertation he, you know, he was all in mm -hmm. so uh, our fiddler, Ron and his wife were starting to have kids. And so uh, Anne and David and I decided to form a band and play because I could see that I wasn't going to get to do as much of this music and dance stuff as I wanted with Swallowtail only. And so the three of us started and we called ourselves Three Hand Reel. Hmm. And then we decided that was a little too limiting. So we figured out another name Wild Asparagus because we were in the Asparagus Valley. So the three of us played together for a while, and then we decided we wanted to go on a 10-week tour. And so we did this 56-gig, 10-week tour, circumnavigating the U.S. That's a lot of gigs, George. It's a lot of gigs. And up until that point, I had graduated from college. I didn't want to work for an oil company, and I didn't want to do more school. And so I ended up being the executive chef for the Iron Horse, which is a music cafe in Northampton. Legendary cafe. And uh, it was the perfect job for me because they only wanted me to work on the week during the week and on the mm -hmm. weekends I was free. So I could gig on the weekends and I could work during the week and it worked out perfectly. But after I did the 10 week tour, that's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to go back to working again, mm -hmm. uh, a regular job. And so uh, it was a great tour. We survived it. We actually thrived and decided to keep going. So really, uh, ever, that was in, in um, 1984 that we did that big tour. So then I'd, I've really just been doing music and dance ever since then as my main uh, activities. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so that's a, a long question about how we, or long answer to how we got started. Well, you're great at telling stories, George. It amazes me how many memories, like you remember so many details of your own life. I was barely in existence when all this was happening, and I don't remember most of what I was doing at the time, so well done. <laughs> <laughs>
um, when you start, when Swallowtail and Wild Asparagus were starting, um, were there other contra dance bands? Like, were bands a thing? Did you have role models for that? Like, what made you want to start a band as opposed to like the kind of more pickup style or dance orchestra kind of style? You know, that's a, a, a great question because it, it, there were a lot of assumptions that we just took as like, this is how you did things. Um, I think that part of it was that we all came from kind of a classical music background, all the people that were involved with Swallowtail. Um, and so, you know, the power, a lot of the power in classical music is not so much the soloists, but what, what happens when you put groups together, groups of people together mm -hmm. and have an identity. Um, uh, but perhaps it was also due to the, the local bands that played like the, um, in the area, like Applejack, for example, which was a band uh, that was um, playing, you know, it played once a month in our, in our area and also in other places, uh, and was very involved with the Chelsea House uh, uh, Brattleboro music scene. Um, and they, were, they considered themselves to be a band. Um, when bands, you know, as a dancer, you don't necessarily pay that much attention to who's calling and who's dancing. You're more interested, you're more self-aware mm -hmm. um, or self-conscious or self-absorbed. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, you don't necessarily, you, you know, the, they would announce who the caller was and who the band was. But the individuals weren't that high, highlighted, real, highlighted really, mm -hmm. except in the cases sometimes with the callers that you'd, you'd recognize their name because, or you know, you have to pay attention to them because they're offering you a lifeline out of chaos. Uh, but the bands, you wouldn't necessarily know who's playing there if you're concentrating on your partner. And often there aren't stages and so the band isn't up where you can see them. And I mean, even to this day, it's really funny to hear other band members talk about going into the restroom and having people say, oh, isn't the band great tonight? And, uh, you know, what do you think about them? And or, you know, they're in the in the stall and they're hearing people talking about the band and, and not that they don't know who the members are. Or they don't recognize them when they come out to wash their hands or whatever. It's yeah, I'd be on the way back from the restroom back to go on stage and people would ask me to dance on the way back. <laughs> exactly. And I was like, well, I would love to dance, but I have to go do a thing over there <laughs> right now. In a few minutes, you'll see why I said no, <laughs> nothing personal. <laughs> but that's, that's a good thing, right? I mean, most of the time it means that people are having a good time and enjoying their own experience. It's true. And as, as an introvert, I actually love not having that much attention. Um, it sometimes just feels too much. And I, th that anonymity is really, I, I find very refreshing uh, of not having to be, you know, the center of attention and yet to be able to um, help people have a good time. Uh, so it, it is kind of fun to be in an area where I, I don't know people and, and get invited to dance when I'm calling uh, because I'm out checking sound or, or looking at, uh, or, go, or coming back from the restroom or whatever. <laughs> it's, uh, it is a, a funny thing. Like, ah, sorry, I, I can't, <laughs> uh, I gotta, you know, 
I had just called that dance. The dance is still progressing. And I've gone out to listen to sound and somebody's just asked me to dance the next one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so like, okay, that's, uh, I, that's lovely, but can't do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there's some callers who like, I don't know. I feel like there's a bunch of different personality types. There's people who kind of command the stage with their personality. There's people who see themselves as the people who are running it all. And then there's people who see themselves as facilitators who are just kind of quietly trying to make it happen. And then there's people who want to tell jokes and there's people who want to talk as little as possible. Like um, what kind of stage persona do you think about having? Like what fits your personality? Well, I feel like I'm more like an enzyme, huh. really, in that I help catalyze uh, the event, that, I'm the, the, uh, that I help dancers come together with the music and, it, and help present something that we, an activity that we can all do together and move to the music, which is really what I think about as being the, uh, move as a community to the music. Because this is community dance. It's uh, not just dancing with one other person, it's dancing with everybody in the room. And we're being coordinated by the music. And so we're really interacting with the music. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I, my role is really just to help facilitate that to happen. Mm -hmm. So I want to try to create a situation where people feel safe and uh, and I, I don't really feel like I have to entertain them personally. I think that the activity that we're all doing together is, enter is perfect entertainment and the music speaks for itself. And uh, what I want to do is I want to present the music and the musicians and the dancers and basically act as an introduction to each other and that we can all work together. Uh, so I, I don't, you know, one grows to love the sound of one's own voice, I suppose, sometimes. <laughs> Uh, but I, I really, my mission is really just to help facilitate the activity. And so I, I try not to, I don't like memorize jokes to be able to tell jokes and I don't um, try to do stand up comedy or, or anything like that. I, right. I really try to take a back seat to what's happening, um, right. but try, try to create enough structure that people can feel comfortable. Um, yet you managed to do it with warmth and charm and humor regardless. It's, it's fun hearing your voice in headphones as we conduct this interview because I've missed the sound of your voice. Aw, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> you know, and, and we, you and Noah and I did that Pacific Northwest tour with you and just all those hours you spent in the car talking and hearing all your stories, it's really great to hear all that again. It's funny. I think a lot of people have wonderful associations with the sound of your voice. If that's not too weirdly forward to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, I, I have, I, you know, I have to say the activities that, you, that give you pleasure, like dancing, um, there's a lot of things that are associated with that uh, that help build for even a, a, a really wonderful experience down the road. So for example, you have a good time dancing one night and then you go back and you hear the music again and you dance again and all the good feelings from last time kind of help you have a good time this time. And that builds up to a quite a ch good charge. So everything that you associate, like the sound of a particular band or the sound of a caller or a voice or the activity, the repeated activity that you're doing, 
uh, alamanding or swinging or, or uh, even just moving to the music, it all builds up and creates this wonderful um, energy and, and reminiscent. Um, yeah. The smells at a dance aren't necessarily that great. <laughs> uh, it's a little scary to go into a dance in progress or an evening in progress. Sometimes it's like, oh, okay. You just get hit with this wall of humidity <laughs> and uh, the smell of happy humans <laughs> <That's right. laughs> in close proximity. It, it, is a, it, it can be, you know, it's better not to dwell on that level. But, uh, you know, the, again, hearing the music or it just brings back the good feelings. And I'm so I'm I'm very uh, happy to be associated with good memories for, you know, for you and for anybody that has uh, has danced with us. You know, I think it's like during this pandemic, it's been months I mean, since March, since anyone's danced, really. And yet every time I go into one of these interviews, we think, how are we going to talk about conscious dancing? And yet it comes right back like like state dependent memory. You know, it's totally a thing. And as you start to pull on the threads of these memories, all these sensory experiences come flooding back to me, which is why I think that our tradition will 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 be fine. You know, we'll. It'll be weird for a little while and then we'll get started and then it'll all be in our bones and in our hearts and in our minds. So I try to encourage myself on the days I feel very sad. I like that perspective a lot and I, I agree. So let's geek out about music. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the things I'm especially curious to talk to you about is that as a caller and a musician, um, I imagine you have thoughts about pairing music with dances or any other thoughts you would like to expound on? <laughs> well, um, I guess the, the more that I do things, the less I, I, I come to the realization that the less I know. Um, and so what I try to do is uh, rely on other people more. And I guess the reason I'm saying that is that I can remember uh, years ago thinking that I knew a whole lot about how to pair music with dancing and what I preferred and all of those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And I can remember being at gigs and then after the gigs kind of writing and thinking about uh, what my experience was and how I wished that things would get better or would have gone better. Ways of improving the experience for everybody, including myself and the musicians and thinking about okay, so how do I codify this? How do I make rules that, that make it work? And I, I, I've always been really hesitant to direct people to do things um, in some ways. And I, that's maybe curious as a caller because I, one of the things I do is I, I direct people to do stuff so that what is in my head can be manifested. Uh, in, in as far as uh, dance choreography goes and, and what kind of experience people have. Uh, but as a caller, I, I've been more and more reliant on the musicians that I'm working with to help set the music and pick the tunes for the dances. Mm -hmm. And my favorite thing is to try to be able to communicate what I'm hoping that the dance will, how it'll make people feel yeah. and let the musicians pick the music that they think will work. And their agenda can be completely different of mine. I mean, their agenda could be 
ooh, we just learned this really cool tune, and it's going to be fun. We think it's going to be fun to dance to. Let's do it. This dance sounds like it wouldn't really uh, jeopardize that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it, it, it could work. And I would much rather people play to their, you know, strengths, and rather than trying to second guess what I'm trying to express, but more that to use their enthusiasm for for the music that they want to play. Uh, it really seems like that is the most successful because the the most fun I've had calling has been when I am surprised and, yeah. and delighted by how it works out. And if it's if things are too tightly controlled, it doesn't leave any room for that. So I kind of prefer to trust the musicians to share some clues that I have or some ideas or starting places with musicians and that could be just showing them the choreography in some cases in other cases it could be more guidance if they if they want that and letting them run with it and I think that it, it feels way more successful than it would be if I was trying to micromanage and, and control it uh, and actually say okay so this is my philosophy about reels or jigs or uh, I much more want to um, say you know say something along the lines of that last dance was really high energy everybody is a little bit out of breath right now let's take it down a notch and make them feel really well taken care of and that they're going to be gliding through the next dance mm-hmm. uh, with ease and it, and they're going to be able to um, recharge and be ready for the next time you really want to push them and, and uh, wind everybody up so you give that feedback to the band and then they make the right musical choice. That's right. To go along with that. That's right. So it is really very much more of a collaborative effort uh, and trying to set up everybody for, for success as opposed to uh, directing how things are going to go. I mean, from my perspective, I've really enjoyed that aspect of working with you, like Buddy System and and you have... We've worked together a fair amount, especially in recent years. And it's just been so fun because I, I, I think what you're saying about it's easy to get rigid with your thinking about, well, this kind of tune goes with balancey dances and this kind of tune goes with smooth dances. But you realize you can have the same dance and put 10 different kinds of music with it and it just brings out different aspects of the same dance. And I love playing with that now that I've done this a couple times, you know. <laughs> It's fun to play with that. And you could have a dance and a tune that work amazingly one night. It's magic. The whole hall is on fire. You try to repeat it the next night, and it's not the same. And you just don't know why. You know, it's like the right mood at the right time and the floor and the people. And so rather than trying to recreate experiences, it's all about, like, in the moment, what feels inspiring. And I love having that flexibility. Like, I feel like we really create an experience together. It feels very collaborative, and that's really fun. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. That's really been my experience, and uh, it is a. I, I've really treasured the times I've gotten to work with with you and Noah in particular. Because mm-hmm. of that. I think if we want to create magic, we have to be in the moment, and we have to be with the dancers in that moment, wherever they are, and and vice versa. So, I love that freedom of like. You'll tell us in advance what some of the dances might be if we ask so that we could save a set or two that we, we know might go really well. But we don't have to stick to that. And then we get there and we're like, actually, let's do this other thing instead. And that's 
Really great. Who were some of your inspirations as a caller as you began to learn your craft? Let's see. Well, I, I have to say that everybody that I've encountered has contributed um, on my journey. Uh, you know, uh, Taylor Whiteside and uh, um, oh dear, I'm blanking on his name, but I will remember it. Um, A hot day, it'll come. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the Boston area callers Ted Sanella uh, and Tony Parks. Mm -hmm. uh, I danced too pretty regularly. Um, I met uh, there was a caller Todd Todd Whittemore who's just started calling again. Um, he was uh, he wasn't calling much when I first met him, but then he ended up calling a bunch and also starting a, a dance series, a very successful dance series. Uh, in the Boston area, um, Todd Whittemore. Um, I met Ralph Page early on and he taught me uh, one of the most profound lessons about calling uh, really ever. It was a, a kind of a landmark experience. Um, Ralph Page uh, was semi-retired when I, I met him. I didn't go to any of his regular summer dances, but uh, the organizers in Boston, uh, uh, some of the organizers, um, the Taylor, the Whites, uh, Taylor, let's see, what was his name? The Taylors were folk dance instructors. Uh, Marianne, and I can't remember mm. um, her husband's uh, name at the moment, but um, anyway, they organized a big, uh, special dance for Ralph Page. And it seemed like there were over a hundred squares in the room. Wow. It was a huge, huge gathering. And it was a very, you know, it had been, they talked it up over months and it was, it was like, okay, this is the great Ralph Page. I really, you know, the, the fellow that kind of bridged between the old days and, and modern contra dancing and square dancing. And I'd really love to uh, experience that. So I, I got a, you know, I was at that time I was in high school and I'd just been dancing. I think it was actually the after the summer or the year after the summer I went dancing. And I had just learned how to do a Swedish style hold, turning dance hold swing, where you put your hand around the waist of the person you're dancing with and then you take the free hand. So the right hand is around the waist of your partner. The left hand is underneath the hands. And it's a very solid hold and it's used for swinging really, really fast. Mm. And somebody had just shown me that hold and I was like, oh, this is really cool. It feels like I'm in a helicopter, uh, you know, buckled in and safe and I can really do this. And uh, so I was doing, I was, we were in a square formation and uh, I wasn't really listening to the caller much because he was still organizing and calling for squares and for people to join squares. And so I was my square mates were like, oh, show us what you're doing there. And so I was demonstrating how to do the swing. And I, you know, this was somebody that had been dancing for only like three or four or five months. And I was so proud that I had something that people wanted to know about and to share because uh, I definitely have the uh, know-it-all gene. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, 
uh, plus self-esteem. So uh, I'm happy to share uh, what I know or what I don't don't really actually know. And um, Ralph stopped the whole dance and said, young man, don't do that. And I was like, oh, okay. And what I didn't realize was that some years before, a, a very strong, large lumberjack was swinging with a very small, slight woman in that hold, using that hold, and he swung really fast and then let go, and she flew across the room and broke her leg. Oh, my goodness. And so the rule was you didn't do that swing at Uncle Ralph's dances. Yeah. And I didn't know that because I had just started. And the organizers came over to me and said, you just disrupted the whole night. If you ever do that again, if you, you know, if you ever do this again, you will, you, you will be banned from dancing in Boston. Wow. And I would have, I, I was crushed. I would have left the dance right then, except my square mate said, oh, don't worry about them. They're, they're old. They're going to die soon. They're just, you know, it's, don't, don't pay any attention to it. Um, you know, we asked you to do it. Sorry, you got in trouble and whatever. Don't worry about it. You'll, you'll enjoy dancing in Boston for many years. And so I took them at their, you know, face value and I didn't, I didn't quit dancing. That's good. But what I did learn was the power that the caller has to call people out. Mm. And that it really isn't fair. There were so many other ways that that could have been handled. Uh, and I, I, you know, I also realized that um, when, you, when, when you're as old as Ralph was at that time and had been doing something for so long, and your identity is so tied up with it that sometimes you forget the power that you wield. And so it, it's a really, it was a really good lesson to me in, in the dynamics of, and the responsibilities that one has as a caller to keep people safe, even if it's from yourself mm -hmm. and for, for calling people out. Um, and, you know, it's true that that it, could well have been a, I could have been engaging in a dangerous activity but we weren't swinging that fast uh, you know in retrospect it, it would have been much better just to send somebody over to the square and say hey pay attention to what the caller is saying yeah instead of of you know calling me out like that so I I learned a whole lot about that from from uh, <laughs> from that experience um, one of the things about being a caller is that, you, you know, there may be multiple band members, but there's usually only one caller at a time. So, of course, my follow, fellow callers, Tim Van Eggman and uh, uh, other dance weekends that I've been at where there have been other callers. And mm -hmm. um, I, I've really learned f uh, from everybody, you know, uh, imitation is really flattery. <laughs> it's a great flattery. Uh, and when I saw stuff that would work, I would, I'd be happy, I'd happily take it on and try it out and see if that was something that uh, would work. Um, one of the things that happened when we went on our 10 week tour is we played in Brasscown, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And after we played that evening dance, they invited us back the next year to participate in their winter dance week and at the winter dance week they asked us they hired us to be the program directors for the next year 
and so, uh, and as part of the tours that we did with Swallowtail, we met um, uh, a fellow, Frank Hall, in Bloomington, Indiana, who was one of the program directors for Country Dance and Song Society. So he hired Swallowtail to come and teach at Pinewoods the following summer. Mm -hmm. And so we started getting, we were, you know, the young band and we were starting to uh, get invited to dance weekends and that sort of thing. And then another weekend that uh, we got invited to play for a Swallowtail was uh, the Augusta dance weekend and Larry Edelman, who um, was organizing that weekend. And he, um, I would say that he's probably one of the most inf influential callers uh, that I encountered because he really was a teacher of uh, of whatever he does. Uh, he he's a um, in in his non dancing life he works as a trainer and trains people how to do things. Uh, not kind of like a lion trainer, but maybe a little bit like it. <laughs> uh, it's an applicable skill for calling. <laughs> I would think so, uh, but he really had his processes down and and learning how to learning how to teach. Um, and so, you know, watching him, how he organized the dance week and uh, those things, uh, Larry Edelman definitely was one of my, my calling um, heroes. Uh, the other thing that was happening too is that I encountered vintage dancing um, at the time. And uh, I am, I'm trying, unfortunately, I'm blanking on his last name. Uh, we can look some of these up later and we'll oh, share them in the podcast notes. So don't that worry. would be wonderful. Yes, but, no um, pressure. It is still hot. <laughs> <laughs> the Cincinnati, um, the Cincinnati Vintage Dance uh, Community did a week-long dance camp uh, for vintage dancing, like how to do, and they defined vintage dancing as sort of everything before the 1900s or early 1900s, uh, and I remembered his name. Richard Powers mm. uh, was uh, one of the, he founded the Cincinnati Vintage Dance Scene. He was uh, a fabulous graphic artist and really had broad vision. Um, and so part of the vintage dancing is all the uh, uh, trappings that go with it. So like dressing up in period costume and creating balls and, and, uh, and events. And he really, he was really into it and teaching and he really knew how to teach couple dancing really well. I, I was, I still am blown away by how good he is at breaking things down and teaching stuff. And he moved from Cincinnati to move to California to teach at the University of California and has since written some books on, on he's, really enamored with waltz as well as other couple dances and he's written a, a wonderful book on waltzing and philosophy and it's it's um it's a great read uh, but as far as you know i look at calling that there's the teaching or presenting a dance getting people to learn how to do it and then as one component and then the other another component is the actual calling of the dance while the music is going on and then, of course, the third component is how you create a space where that can all happen, the mm -hmm. dance organization part of things. And as far as teaching people how to dance and how to move through space, 
and to music, I, I have to say that Richard Powers is the most influential on, on what I've been doing and, and learning. Um, he did it so well and does it so well um, that it just takes my breath away when I'm, when I, I get to uh, be around him. Mm. And it was so, so inspiring and encouraging. What were some of the specific things that you learned from him? I, I think the mechanics of teaching people how to move and also how to, uh, we have often, we have images of ourselves of what our abilities are and how to do things. Uh, I, I often think of contradancing as being kind of a, a gateway drug kind of experience. <laughs> Two other kinds of dancing? Two other kinds of dancing. Yeah. And that, you know, you start as being, I'm not a dancer, but I think I can do this because it's a highly directed activity. I don't have to come up with anything on my own. I'm just told what I have to do. Right. They say if you can walk, you can contradance, right? Exactly. And, you know, uh, square dancing, kind of similar kind of thing. So I think contradancing helps create the idea that you actually are a dancer, that you can dance, that dancing is part of your DNA. And one of the things that I learned from Richard is that you can trick people into doing stuff. <laughs> Uh, you can distract them so that they can actually get over themselves to do things. Yes, get out of their heads. And or get them in so into their heads that they forget that they have any um, that they can't do something. Yeah, they can get out. So it's, it creates a space where you can get out of your own way. And so the things that that he's figured out how to hold people's attention, what to have focus attention on. Because moving movement is such a complicated thing. I mean, think about it as a, as a kid, the hardest thing that you learn how to do is probably walk. One of the hard, or certainly when you're a child, you, you are the smartest you will ever be in your life. <laughs> like you are able to learn things faster yeah. than you ever can do any other time. Your neurons are very plastic. They are. And uh, so I think that um, to be able to help people return to that and sort of have that childlike approach to learning things is really valuable. And he was able to set things up uh, so that even people who you wouldn't be able to say, you wouldn't judge, like if you were judging somebody else, which of course none of us ever do, <laughs> look at somebody and say, oh, they're not really a dancer. Um, somebody that has been judged as not a dancer can actually move and dance and um, but getting back to my original point which was that mo any kind of movement is really complex and if you focus on what you're trying to do you'll probably won't succeed um, it's better that if you can use the skills that you've developed in other areas uh, and focus on something else and then you'll just be able to do it um, and so the ability to distract people so that they, they're, they're, um, the stuff that they already know can come out and help them in their journey was, again, something that Richard seemed to be really good at being able to uh, set people up for success for learning things. And whether it's learning a long tango sequence and, and how he presented like things like uh, teaching the end of the dance first, like 
working at the final gold and then working backwards and adding on more and more so that you don't just practice the beginning of the dance a million times mm -hmm. to get to the, and then get to the end and now the end mm -hmm. is the weakest part because you've worked on it the least but instead building up success and it that translates into learning music too is that often if you learn the tune from the the end moving forward uh sorry i didn't say that right um if you learn the end of the tune first so that you can finish strong then you keep adding more and more to the tune so that when you start the weakest link is really the beginning and once you get going then you can finish which encourages you to go back to the beginning so the beginning can become stronger yeah and uh uh, sort of that as a model for learning how to, uh, or, or learning a, a new dance or a new activity. Thinking about where you're going and having that in mind is helpful. Yeah. interesting perspective of having been a member of the dance community for a long time now, both with a strong local presence and a strong national presence. You know, there are some musicians or callers who mostly travel around nationwide or who mostly call locally, but you kind of do both. You've had a very active, busy home in Greenfield for decades now with your regular wild asparagus dance and other dances in the area. And you also call at dance weekends all over the country. And you were one of the people who kind of helped create the nationwide scene that we have now. Um, so what are your thoughts? This is a giant question, George. Summarize <laughs> the last 30 years for us in some coherent way, please. But what are your thoughts about how the dance scene has changed and what you've seen? And I don't know, any, you could talk about any kinds of things. Where is music going? Where is dancing going? What have you noticed change? Wow. <laughs> right? That, that's, uh, that's, I'm, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, we can break it down. <laughs> I, I think we might have to, I think you, we might have to dig, uh, break it down a little bit into smaller steps. Yes, you have 30 seconds to answer, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I, that's, that's too big a, a I, I love the idea of the question, but it feels too big to, I don't know where to start. So try again. Yeah, so you've seen things on a local scale with running the, you know, the Greenfield regular dance, like the Wild Asparagus dance, and being at a caller at many other dances in the region. And, you know, you also were one of the people who started this movement towards dance weekends and tours. And what was that like starting, you know, being one of the first bands who was traveling a lot? And you've created a lot of events. Like, you're like, I want to go out to the Pacific Northwest, so I'm going to help start a dance weekend there. And what, what, how did that all come about? I think that the same motivation that, that, uh, that I felt when I was, uh, when I went off to college from getting to dance, you know, five or six, seven nights a week to an area that had once, once a month, uh, I was uh, desperately wanting to have, make stuff ha happen. And it seemed like if it wasn't happening, then the thing to do is to help create it. Mm -hmm. And I think that the touring came also out of that and then the creation of dance weekends um i attended a, a lot of dance weekends uh the cincinnati all, all throughout what i was doing i was going to a many as many events and dances as i could because i really i love the dancing part of things i mean if i had to choose between playing music and calling and dancing i would definitely take the dancing part first that would that's the most important thing to me um, if, if for whatever reason I couldn't call or I couldn't play music, the thing that I would really miss is the ability to, da to mm -hmm. dance. Uh, so I would, I went to a lot of events. I went to events on the West coast. When I heard about dance weeks or weekends out there, I would go, uh, in the Midwest, um, and up and down the East coast, uh, I really tried to go to as many events as possible. And I, um, I spent a bunch of time working with uh, Jay Unger and Molly Mason for, at their Shokin events. Mm. Um, they, uh, they, really, they really throw a great party. Yeah, they do. And uh, it was really wonderful to, um, to get to spend time with them. And I, I did all sorts of things. I, I performed at their events. I also worked as crew chief or, or on their crew. Um, I have done some food work with them. Um, Jay and Molly know both how to throw a good party and also how to build community. They do. and It's a really nice combination. It, it was something that I really looked very hard at, at, at successful, and, and it sort of out of that um the desire we started a uh, uh ann and david and i um put together a weekend called dancerama uh which was in which we actually have restarted in the northwest uh our first one was this past uh november um but it had been on uh, we'd mothballed it for several years because we didn't couldn't ha couldn't find a facility mm -hmm. on the east coast um but we did it for many years uh, here um, in Connecticut and um, in, in Massachusetts also. Uh, and it was really, 
the motivation for putting on weekend events as opposed to one night stands is that there's a whole different level of community that can be generated when you're with somebody for a week or for for a weekend than you can just in an evening dance and that connection just felt and feels so good um and it's it's fun to be i really love organizing things and events and creating uh creating that community helping create that community mm -hmm. it's it's a it's when i feel like i'm really answering my calling as it were that my mission um it just resonates i love feeling fully utilized and i love being able to use all the stuff that i've learned over the years to be able to create things and the week long dance camps that i do that's really what i'm passionate about it is just so much fun to be able to uh create that and bring value to to all the participants whether you know including musicians and the uh, dancers and and the local community the the whole thing it just feels to me it's it's what i absolutely love doing mm -hmm. um but going back to your question about you know what it, it felt like at the time it really was just to create more of what we love doing yeah and it was one step at a time and there was no i had i don't think that we were it was really putting one foot in front of the other with no plan about where we're going uh unfortunately <laughs> or fortunately there there was no destination in mind it was really just this is what needs to this is the next step let's you know there's there's a it looks like there's we could put a dance weekend together there's not too many right now we can make that happen or uh my friends for example what started uh the um the St. Croix dance weeks was uh a couple of friends of mine were moving down to St. back to St. Croix and they were going to miss dancing and I got excited about <coughs> having a winter vacation for for the band uh being able to afford to do something like that yeah and so uh we created the event around that um and then it got uh, totally out of control uh out of control meaning very successful <laughs> well you know to, to it started um with with my talking with my friends saying what you know what is it going to be uh like to be on St. Croix and have no contra dancing you clearly love it and they said oh well you should come down and do a dance and i was like okay but like who knows how to contra dance on St. Croix right and they said well we have maybe 30 30 friends we've got a nice artist community that would come out and do it and you know we get about 40 or 50 people to come out and see weekly movies that we project onto a sheet on you know tied to the side of a building and i bet people would would want to come and dance and uh and i was like yeah that's sounds okay i don't know how i could bring a band and do that but um at that point there was no consideration about using recorded music for for contra dancing that was like the um the last thing in my mind it, you know it had to be live music because it was such a important part of of my reality yeah So I so I went to a music party uh a couple of weeks later and said I you know I'm thinking we've been doing this dance arama thing this weekend but I'm thinking about doing a winter dance retreat in on St. Croix 
And three people handed me deposits and I was like, wait a minute, I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't know how it's, you know, how it's going to work. And they said, no, no, we know you, George. Uh, <laughs> yes. You're going to make it happen and we want to be there. It's a great idea and you're going to need some money to get it going. And so here, you know, take the deposits and use them to get going on this. And it, we know that if it doesn't happen, you're going to give us our money back. And I was like, oh, well, this could work. So I planned an event with my friends in St. Croix for 80 people and 150 people signed up. Wow. And it was like, okay. What year was this? This was a while ago, right? Uh, yes, this was 26 years ago. Yeah, wow. Um, and so it was, that was like, okay, this is, this is going to work. And um, people went and, and had a, a fantastic time. Um, the first year, the learning curve was really steep. Um, I went down to St. Croix the week, the day before ev all the guests arrived. And uh, we carried our sound system down. Each band member took a piece of the sound system with them as check bags. Uh, <laughs> because my friends didn't, weren't really connected with, like, they didn't know anybody in St. Croix who had a sound system. Right. Uh, I mean, even a piano, we had to bring our, our own piano with us. We didn't know anything about that. And then we went back home the same day that everybody else was going home as well. So it was really just like, we're all going down there, we're doing it, and then we're coming back. And things happened along the way. I mean, the big thing that first year was that uh, the hotel that my friends had booked um, didn't actually have room for the 80 people, let alone the 150 people that signed up. And so it was several months that we had nowhere to nowhere to stay and it was only through luck and uh and connections with with people that were actually outside the dance community that we encountered uh, that i encountered a woman who brought swim teams down to the caribbean college swim teams down to the caribbean for two weeks at a time and she had a whole circuit of islands that she had hotels lined up that they could go to so they would this college swim team would fly right there and they would swim in the local pool for training for two weeks in the Caribbean in so in the middle of the winter and then they'd go back to college so it was like a little break for them and she turns out she wasn't using this facility on St. Croix the time that we wanted to do it and so she said sure I'll set it set you up with this and so we ended up having a place to stay and that kind of story is the like you have many stories like that of starting both your events in Hawaii and in St. Croix, right? It's like uh, oh, using your yes. people skills and really meeting people <laughs> in the community and trying to figure out how to get this done. It's really a community event. It, yes, you and have that, to make connections. That's part of what I love. It's just the fact is just trying to create something out of nothing. Yeah. And uh, I, I felt I feel so fortunate that I've had that opportunity. Um, and it's you know, bless those little instruments and the places they've taken us to, <laughs> the music uh, and the dance have really created a, a lovely, um, lovely experiences all around. Yeah, a lot of memories. Yeah. A lot of people. It's really wonderful. So getting back to the music question. Yes. Um, that you originally or that you asked earlier about how things have changed. One of the challenges for me is that wherever we have gone, because I, I use, I mean, I do work with with uh, Buddy System whenever I can, and uh, and and several other bands, 
most of my experience has been working with either Swallowtail or Wild Asparagus and really predominantly Wild Asparagus because that's been the band that has been touring the most heavily, mm -hmm. is that the way we play music creates a way of dancing. Ah, this is a pet theory of mine. I've been trying to get it in all of these episodes and you just said it without me even asking you. <laughs> Please say so, more, George. Well, so we are creating our own reality in that because of the way we play the music, because of the rhythms that we use and the tunes that we're picking and how we're presenting it and how I present the dances in the context of the music. One question that people ask me a lot is, how is dancing different in different parts of the countries? country? And I say, from my perspective, it's all the same. Because you're facilitating because it. We're making it. Because we're making a thing happen that right. is all the same all over. And people are, are reacting to it in the same way because it seems like we've tapped into kind of this core uh, co-creation. And people say, tend to react to it the same way. I mean, there are slight differences, like a little bit of terminology or how people say promenade with their hand up or down or right. uh, that sort of thing or, or things that are... Um, there's a few little differences, but as a, as a caller and as a musician people are reacting to us in the same way. And so it doesn't feel that different. In order to answer that question, I would have to be more of somebody that is going and visiting dance communities with the local, with the bands that are playing for them. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and I noticed that when I'm working with Buddy System that people also dance, they dance differently to Buddy System than they do to Wild Asparagus, for example. And there's a greater difference between how people dance to Buddy System than people, or, or the Clayfoot Strutters or, uh, um, uh, you know, or really, or any of the other uh, other bands, musicians, everybody's creating their own thing, and people are reacting to the music and dancing differently, and it's it's pretty much all good, great. Uh, but in order to see how people are dancing differently, you really have to go to, you have to have different music and different colors. That's right. And so, uh, it's hard for me to say how things have changed. It would be more me talking about how our music has changed, perhaps, and then how people are reacting differently to it. And it's very hard for me to say that because I'm not dancing to us. I'm calling to us. Right. And I'm noticing. And also, because we've been doing this for so long, it means that people come to our dances that aren't necessarily regular dancers anymore. Because the life cycle of a dancer is that you dance for a while and then maybe you really get into it and you dance a whole lot and then you kind of taper off and get, do other things and you might come back if you recognize the collar or the band or you, you just get a wild hair and you want, oh, I remember contra dancing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we've kind of trained people as we've learned, as we've gone along. And so if you go to a Wild Asparagus dance, say in Colorado, there are a lot of people that, people come up to me all the time at the dance and say, I haven't seen this many people for, for years. Like, I haven't seen people I haven't seen for 10, 15, 20 years who came, who came out because you guys are here. And they remembered having a great time dancing 25 years ago, and now they're here dancing to you now. Yeah, it um, becomes an event, like a reunion. Yeah, and so it's a special party. Yeah, uh, it pulls on all those memories that like you are talking about before. It, it really does. of memories of good experiences that they had in the past. Yeah, I mean, it takes a lot for people to get away from the TV or <laughs> the comfort <laughs> of their home. Especially as you're aging, <laughs> yeah. it's just—it's like you know—you have distractions, kids and families, and 
just other pursuits. I mean, there's so much to do in the world that it's um, amazing that people choose to include dancing as much as they do. I'm, I'm, and I'm supremely grateful for that. But I, I, it's really hard for me to say how things are changing. And also, um, you know, when we were in the last number of years, we've been doing about 100 dates a year. And that's a lot of time. And so it's hard. I still really make a priority to go to other people's events and to go to other dance camps because I want to see what folks are doing and how it is. Um, and I want to learn from them. Yeah. And I also want to remind myself why I do what I'm doing. That's right. So because important. when I'm in the middle of it, I it's really hard work. Um, I, I work, I never, I mean, <laughs> I, I never really think about it so much, but afterwards looking back at what was, what was, what was necessary to make it happen, it's a lot of work. And so I can sometimes lose sight in the amount of work it is to make it happen at what people are, who are experiencing the fruits of those labors uh, get to enjoy. That's right. Hosting the party feels very different than going to the party. Exactly. So I want to go to the party so that I can remember why it's worth doing it. <laughs> why the party is fun. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and it, and I do. I, you know, like I go to uh, dance events and dan evening dances, and I have a fabulous time, and I love the dancing, and I love the people. And it's like, yes, this is the value. This is why it's worth it to to work that hard, uh, or to do to do what we're doing, uh, because it can, you know, if it, if it, if they, these folks can create it for me, then I can help create it for other people too. Yeah, and you can learn like just what other people are up to and see what else is going on when you're not facilitating the music and the calling for the night. I think, you know, all callers and musicians, not, not all of them are dancers, but I think it's good to get back out there and feel the joy. I, I, I agree. <laughs> so your, put your foot in the pool. <laughs> I, I, uh, so I, I have a really hard time answering your question because I don't get to spend as much time listening to other bands and how they're presenting the, mu their, the music and what's happening at local dances and in when we aren't there. Yeah, uh, that's a, I mean, that's a really good answer in a sense. Yeah. Let me ask you a slightly different question then. When you're calling with different bands and you notice different reactions on the dance floor, like what are some of the differences that you see and how do you think that connects to the music? Well, I, I have to say I've been really fortunate um, in that I've gotten to the point in my career where I can pretty much pick and choose who, or at least I have veto power over who I get to work with, uh, which is nice. So that I, I try to set things up for success and, uh, and, and work with folks that I really feel connected, connect to the dancers. Mm -hmm. uh, what I've observed is that musicians that play to the dance choreography and to the dancers seem to be the most successful. So for example, uh, Wild Asparagus, we're always looking at the dancers and we are playing the music to fit the choreography and fit what the dancers are doing. And our experience is um, that when the dancers aren't reacting to what we're doing, mm -hmm. then we try to find ways to get their attention uh, and help them uh, listen to the music and react to the music. And the feeling that one, that 
it's so satisfying when, for example, the balancing is really in coordinated or you can feel the whole room moving together with the music. Uh, it's just really gratifying. And, and so that provides immense motivation to try to figure out how to make that happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and we do it on an individual basis. We also do it as a, as a band. Uh, individually, we're watching the dancers and we're playing to them. And sometimes that can backfire when things happen on the dance floor that are really <laughs> distracting. You know, somebody falls or, right. uh, or there's an, you know, something happens in, in another part of the room, uh, a table collapses or, or whatever. It can be really jarring and, and take us all out of that thing. Um, but uh, watching the dances and reaction, reaction to it and, and getting people to dance together is um, a, uh, it seems to be a really critical thing. Uh, you and Noah as buddy system, when you're, when you're dancing, I really feel that you guys are right on top of what's happening. Um, I think that you're paying attention to what the dancers are doing and playing to the, to the choreography. Um, it, I don't really know. It could also be that your music is so compelling that people are, are reacting to it. Even like maybe you, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you were to say, oh no, we're not paying to the dancers, attention to the dancers at all. We're just playing music and the dancers are reacting to it. But I don't really believe that you would say that. I would love to know sometime. It, we, we watch them. I'll, spoiler alert. We, okay. We watch them pretty I don't, I constantly. Don't, I don't see how you could do it otherwise <laughs> and be as effective as you are. Um, it's more than, we, more than watching them, we feel them. It's like, it's like using your, um, my writing instructor used to call it soft eyes. You're using your peripheral vision to just feel what's happening on the dance floor. Yeah. Even if we're not looking at them, we might be having our eyes closed, but we're feeling what's going on up there. Anyway. The, the, right. And it's, it's the whole thing. I mean, you're feeling the vibrations in the room. You're listening to the sound in the room. It's coming back to you and it creates that uh, feedback that you need in order to be to reactive. And so uh, the, the really great bands or the great dance experiences I've had, the great calling experiences have been when I've been working with people that actually um, are able to tune in to what's going on in the floor and bring people along with that. Um, there was a dance community, which I'm not going to name because I would love to call for the and play for them again sometime. <laughs> uh, we, we joke that um, Anne Percival uh, in Wild Asparagus uh, loves to scrapbook and to write down stories and journal. Mm. And I hope that someday that her journal writings will uh, be able to be published. Uh, but long ago, we decided that it would probably have to be posthumously. Yeah. Uh, because, of course, what you focus on are the, you know, the disasters, the bad things that have happened. Not necessarily all the time, but there are a lot more like, oh, no, I can't believe this happened kind of story than, oh, that was such a wonderful experience right. kind of thing. Um, but this, this kind of... Uh, we were in, in this dance community and we were playing for them and the community pretty much it was they only danced contra dancing to old time music and so they were used to dancing a lot faster than what we were used to playing and so and the beat was different in a different was different 
and the music that they were playing my judgment of it in retrospect was that they the music was play, being played so fast that the dancers couldn't keep up with it and so they couldn't they weren't really dancing in time with the music mm-hmm. and we noticed that people were not dancing in time in our music and it was really frustrating it felt like a total disconnect and it yeah. was horrible and we were not able to force them to to follow us and so after the third dance and the band was like looking at me going like what are we doing we can't do another two hours or two and a half hours of this it is just like we're banging our heads against the wall and so i said okay we're gonna i'm gonna teach all of you how to call and so what i did was i i gave the whole hall like all 150 people a lesson in how to contra call a contra dance so in my mind, in order to call a contradance, you have to b- listen to the music and be able to hear where the phrase is. That's right. And so what I did was I had the dancers be the band and count to eight. Because in my mind, what a contradance band is an eight count generator. <laughs> and so what the band does is basically does one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, over and over again. And the dancers and the you know, a contradance is also 64 beats long, the way that it's being done these days. And so you've got, you know, eight groups of eight, and that's how the phrasing, and you know where the beginning and the start, and the, a really great band will be able to play in such a way that the phrasing is really clear, so you don't have to think about it, you don't have to count along. But I, what I did was, as, a, as a, I taught everybody that, okay, so as a caller, you need to tell people the information they need to know before they have to do it. Otherwise, it's like being in a driver in Boston, where you use your turn signal to indicate a successfully completed maneuver <laughs> as opposed to a predictive event. Right. So, for example, what in Boston, when you're driving, you'll see many cars that will make a right-hand turn, and then they'll turn on their flashers after they've made the turn. Right. Like, and I meant to do that. And with calling, and the, you really have to anticipate the call, and so you're teaching them to be more aware of the music in order to do that. Yes. And not all callers, callers do that. Some are more in the congratulatory, yes, actually, you were supposed to be doing that then, kind of mode of calling. But the, the, most callers strive to let people know ahead of time what they're doing. So in order to do that, if you're going to start the movement on count one, the calls happen on count seven and eight. So I had, the ba- had all the dancers count to eight, and I called the calls on seven and eight. And then I, sw- I had all the dancers call the calls in 7-8. I counted 1-8 to eight over and over again. And then I had the band sneak in and start playing. And the rest of the night, everybody danced right on time. It was Amazing. just like what we ne- wanted to do. And I, I didn't like call the dancers out and said, you guys don't know how to dance to our music. That's right. Um, basically, what I did was I set them up for success. And I was, I'm glad it worked. And I, over the years, I've done that in various places. If, if it really starts like we're feeling out of control or, or not connecting, and it has, has worked. It's, you know, it's one of those things where you can only do it really once. Right. <laughs> but, right. But luckily, you know, we don't encounter that situation where people are not able to dance to our music because they're just not familiar with what we're doing or can't hear it or have been trained not to react to the music. Um, so it sounds like if I were to ask you what you think is great contradance music, 
Um, even before we started talking about genre, some of the answers might be that it's well-phrased and that it's responsive to the dancers. Um, what other things would you add? I, I think that it would be exciting to dance to and that it would be enticing to listen to. Oh, so fun. Okay, fine. That's, that's uh, <laughs> And so uh, that means that sometimes the dancers have to make an effort to listen. So that would be using things like dynamics uh, and uh, arrangements to capture people's attention. Mm -hmm. And again, bring, bring them out of themselves to the whole room. I, I think the dancers go through kind of evolu an evolution. When you first start dancing, you feel very self-centered. You're concerned about whether you're gonna embarrass yourself or if you know, you're worried about whether you know how to do it or not, right. or like learn it. And so you're, you're really only thinking about yourself. It's all me, 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 me all the time. And then after a while, after you become more confident and conversant in the language and terminology, you can think about accommodating your partner and helping your partner succeed. And then after that, you've, you've, you're working on uh, making your partner, helping your partner having a great time and yourself, you can start thinking about the other couple that you're working with, or if you're going outside that group of four, the whole the set, and eventually you become tuned into the whole set that you're dancing with. And then if you can expand further than that to the whole room, and then of course, the next step is like the universe. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, just vibrating with everything. And what the band can do to really give you a, help give you a transformative experience is to bring you out of yourself and be able to hear and feel what's happening, enlarge your, your, your senses, uh, your sphere of influence, as it were. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I, I can think of um, something, some moments that really, like right now, what I'm thinking back to is uh, working with you guys at Falcon Ridge, um, the last time we worked together and mm -hmm. how at one point, you really deconstructed the music down to just a few notes on the piano. Like, Noah wasn't even playing. <laughs> it was just, just you, just a few notes, like not even harmonizing, but a single melody line. And not even the melody of the tune, but more a hint of what... And people were riveted to that. They were listening so hard and dancing with each other so well and that you took them out of that now that now instead of having being distracted by the music you were able to help actually quiet them to get to the point and then the excitement of when it built back up and to be able to take on a journey of going from this really minimalistic thing that just barely had enough repetition to be able to tie into the repetitive nature of the movements and the feelings of experiencing the dance to then being awash in the flood of all the, the notes and the music and the textures of the violin and the, the, uh, the piano interacting with each other uh, with one's journey, it was so exciting. It was like, you know, goosebumps. Hmm. And, uh, and you could just feel the energy in the room just moving in waves. Um, and for me, those peak experiences are kind of what they're like the reward. 
<laughs> for for anything that could be hard about what you know or or uh it's just the those are the moments that it's like okay right place right time right people right moment you know it's interesting because uh you know i can't dance anymore and i used to dance a lot like many callers and dancers i was a dancer first for many years before i started playing and I had to go through like this little period of like kind of grieving that when I couldn't dance. And then people ask me, isn't it weird to be a dance musician if you can't dance? But when it gets like that, I am dancing with them. You know, like it's a different kind of connection where you feel the music in your body and you look out on the floor and you can feel what people are doing. And, and so that's when it's magical. It's like we really are all dancing together. It helps if you have a fiddler who puts out crank and foot percussion. <laughs> you know, like it's just irresistible. But that, that kind of awareness you're talking about for dancers, you know, every, all of us need to have it. Like I've always called it spheres of awareness <laughs> without thinking too much about what I call it. But it's like when you're a new musician, you're just trying to get the motor patterns of the tune out, right? Before you can even think about your bandmates. And then you can think about your bandmates. And then you have to do that before you can even think about improvising together. And then the caller is a whole other layer of awareness that you have to add. And then finally the dancers. And it's not until you get, you can master all those things that you can really put your awareness out onto the dance floor. And so I, I like the thought of dancers seeing it as a goal to eventually be able to put their awareness throughout the whole floor while they're dancing. Because that's really where the magic is. Sure, you can have fun flourishes with your partner, that's like a spice. That's not the whole point in contra dancing. There are many other kinds of dancing where flourishes are the point. Salsa or, you know, many other kinds of couple dances. Maybe I sound curmudgeonly, but I'm very opinionated about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm with you. I, I agree. I'm, I'm uh, definitely on board. And those are just the most magical moments. Well, George, it's been so wonderful to talk with you today. Is there any last thing that you would like to add? No, I think that uh, we've, we've really done a nice range of... Uh, uh, talked about a lot of different topics, and um, it's fun to be able to tell the stories and, and think about, because it brings me back to the moments that uh, of those wonderful experiences. Yeah. So, thank you. So it's so wonderful to talk with you. Thank you very much, George. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to ContraPulse. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams. Thanks to Great Meta Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzakowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit contrapulse.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing!